open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. I want three brave souls. You're not going to have to leave your seats. You're just going to have to dialogue with me a little bit. Three trusting brave souls. It's not that hard, trust me. Um, that would just raise their hand. So this can be a voluntary thing. Gria can be one. Briley, you brushed your hair at just the right moment that I saw a hand. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick on you. And Sadie, perfect. Okay, let me just have you lock in this answer. When I ask the three of you to tell me who you are. Okay, so I am asking you the question, who are you? And what I want you to do is not follow what sort of happens in social norms, which is if one person says it one way, then everyone goes, oh, that's the way we're supposed to do it. Lock in your answer and tell me despite how the other three might answer. So I'll pick on my lovely daughter first. Briley, who are you? Excellent. Okay. Who are you? Okay. Who are you? I'm Gria. Okay, now, here's part two of the question. Prove it. So, go. You're my father. Good answer. (laughs) Sadie, your mom is right here. So the the testimony of your own mother. Gria. My children. Okay, my children. All right, interesting. Thank you, you guys. So interesting that they all went to relationships to sort of prove who they are. They had people in context that could, that could maybe verify that those things are true. Here's something that goes on all the time in the digital world. We do this regularly, and that is we, we verify. We say, here's who we are, and then we verify it in some way. Uh, there's something in the computer world called two-factor authentication. You have probably read these words and sort of glossed over them. But what two-factor authentication is, is that it basically, for your sake, it prevents identity theft. It prevents other people from logging into your account in some way. It protects your digital life. But secondarily, think about this. There's a company on the other end that says, oh, this person is who they say that they are. So what I want to do today is say this, that the way you answer who you are and then your level and method of proving it changes with the circumstances. So in this setting, asking who you are, a first name seemed to suffice. I maybe half expected Gria to say that I'm a child of God first and foremost I'm a husband and a, and a father. Uh, I'm a servant of Jesus and an elder. Or something like, like, you know, some, some more theologically rounded thing. But he just said, Gria. He's a little tired this morning. But he would never do that. If somebody, if he was at a business meeting, he wouldn't start with that. Because that's not what's being really asked of him, right? So think about your own life and how you answer the question, who am I? And then if you're asked to verify that, what you would typically do. Today, what I want to show you is this, that Luke provides in his gospel a culturally appropriate two-factor authentication on the identity of who Jesus is. That's what we're looking at this morning. Lock that in. That's the headline. This matters to you daily if you are a Christian. It matters immensely if you are seeking out the identity of Jesus and if he's worth following. And here's why. The reason it matters to you daily is because of this. Our series is called The Good Doctor. If Jesus is neither good nor a doctor, he does not deserve your trust. 
He doesn't deserve to be followed. He doesn't deserve to be just passed off as a good teacher and I glean some things from him. He would be what's known as a fraud because he claimed to be good and built into that claim of good is a claim of godhood. If, however, Jesus is the God who heals to the uttermost, then it behooves every person on the planet to do whatever it takes to get near to this doctor. We just sang this line that we, that we trust him. I build my life on him. That's just a massive statement that I fear sometimes can roll off my own tongue without really stopping and thinking about it. So the importance of today is that Luke is wanting to provide certainty on the identity of Jesus. Here's what we get to today. We get to the start of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus roughly had a public ministry that lasted for three years. And to to sort of provide context, as he starts his public ministry, which we're going to read about in a second, this is the year of inauguration. This is sort of his, you know, celebratory, you know, coming on the scene. There's a critical building to this, but now here's where he steps into the limelight. Year two, as we'll kind of go through the gospel, sort of his year of popularity. And then by year three, it's the year of opposition. So sort of roughly mapped out, it's important to kind of see that about Jesus' life. If you review chapter three a little bit, and we looked at this last week, it opens with John the Baptist, his cousin, all grown up, and proclaiming the coming of a Messiah. Now what was happening is this. People were confused about who would save them and in the dark about who Jesus was. Think about how little has changed today. Let me say that again. People in John the Baptist's day were confused about Jesus' identity and they were, they were wondering about who could save them. That's really similar to today. Look at, look at verse 15 of chapter 3. It says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John comes on the scene, and it's very clear. The Spirit of God is on the move. The waters are stirring, as it were. And then John answers in a very Christian way, in a normative Christian way, and here it is. Not I, but Jesus. He takes any spotlight that's being put on him, and he immediately points it to Jesus, especially when they say, can you save us? Are you the way? Are you the Christ? Look at verse 16. I baptize with water, but he who is, who is mightier than I is coming. So that's where we left it off. Sort of this, this grand stage has been set, and Luke now turns to bring us not just the central figure of his gospel, but to bring into the limelight, to inaugurate the central figure in all of history. He does this by including some culturally appropriate authentications. Here they are. They're in your notes. You can jot what seems appropriate to you. But the first is baptism. Baptism is this idea of public identification and cleansing, purification. And the second thing he provides is DNA evidence. In biblical terminology, we'd call that a genealogy. It's really important to notice this. Both of those 
are public events. They're trackable and, and out in the open. So I wrote this in for you so that you wouldn't miss it, because um, sometimes people panic if I move the slide too quickly. But here is the central truth that, that this text is, is throwing out at us, at least as I see it, and you can look for yourself. That Jesus is our qualified high priest whose rightful claim on the throne and on our lives is a matter of public record. That's who Jesus is. And I'm going to show you how I get this from the text this morning. So first, let's look at Jesus' baptism. Les Albert, come on up. Uh, Before we read the account of Jesus' baptism, which Luke gives a whopping few words to, uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to hear, I wanted you to hear from Les, who had a really cool experience within the last few months. And because we know Les and see Les every single Sunday, for me, it even just sort of grounded what we're about to read in the Bible in some context that is really familiar and really personal. So, Les. So the uh, opportunity to go to uh, Israel, Don and I went for 10 days in late October. And first day on the bus, 27 people I met that day and the bus driver and the tour guide. And we're, we're leaving Caesarea, and the tour guide asked, who'd like to get baptized? And I'm sitting near the back of the bus, and 12 hands go up in the bus. I, I see the people immediately respond, and I don't know their background. And, and uh, so that was, she made note of that. And the next day, we'd been around the Sea of Galilee, and opportunity came up to go down to the Jordan River. And these 12 people wanted to be baptized. She had trouble getting a pastor. So I had conducted one baptism, so I I offered to uh, help. (laughs) Another young man from the Isle of Man offered to help. So here we are. So 10 minutes before the baptism, the the tour guide mentioned that we have no pastor. She was trying to line one up, and uh, they weren't available. So uh, we're heading to the Jordan River, south south of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, The the outlet there is the Jordan River. It's in Israel, and then a little farther it becomes the border with the country of Jordan. So this is the area typically where uh, baptisms are done uh, currently. And uh, it's kind of interesting. It's run by a, a Jewish kibbutz, you know, the kibbutz, that different communities that were set up for protection and that type of thing. And so they rent white robes. I thought that was interesting kind of a commercial aspect. You could see how this might go the wrong direction. Okay, so so Neil and I, the fellow from Isle of Man, and I are talking literally as we're walking down to the to the river. How, how do we want to do this? I'm in jeans. I wasn't prepared to go in the water. I didn't have a change of clothes. Neil had shorts and was ready to go in the water. So I did the uh, ministry on the shore, and he did the baptism. Okay, this is, we've got a plan. So we uh, shared, uh, had the 12 people get together and shared, uh, and it was just a a sweet time of praying together, talking about what baptism is really about, uh, the death to self and rising out of the water with Jesus. And so each person was escorted into the Jordan River, and, and Neil asked them, do you believe that Jesus is your Savior do you believe that he is your Lord and, and did the immersion in the Jordan River? Now, meanwhile, my sweet bride is 
taking pictures. She's got a nice telephoto lens on a little camera. And so she catches each of the 12 people uh, as they were underwater, one shot, and then as, she, as they rose out of the water. So she had that picture for each of the people that, that were baptized. And uh, then we came out and uh, prayed together and laid hands on those that were, that were baptized. And this was the sweetest result for a trip. These 27 people were bonded together. It was the, the sweetest cooperation and, and spirit of togetherness for 10 days that I've experienced. So that was the baptism at the Jordan River. Thank you, Les. I wanted you to hear that because it grounds this reality that our story, the Christian faith, is occurred in a real time, in a real place, because of the freedom of travel and all of that, like we can go there right now. And, and Les in that, in that picture, he's wearing a shirt. I see him wear that shirt. Like, like it's not just Les. Like, like he's, he's just right there by, by the Jordan. And there's something about that that just sort of grounds it. Let me, let me have you do this. If you've been baptized um, into Christ, I want you just to go there in your mind and consider this question. What led you to get baptized? Like what led you to that decision? Just think about it for a second. And then what meaning did that carry with you? What meaning does that carry with you, your own baptism? Um, when I was thinking about it this week, I, my own heart rate, as I, as I put myself there, began to, to climb because I was nervous. Like one of the things holding me back was being in front of a lot of people. That didn't excite me. And it, had some, it carried some real weighty meaning for, for me. Here's part two of the question. Part two of the question is, if you have not been baptized and you claim Jesus as your Lord, what prevents you? So let me just sort of frame our, our reading of Jesus' baptism with those two ideas, all right? Luke chapter 3, verse 21. It says this, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened... And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So here it is, the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. And he gets baptized. And that's all Luke gives to us. We can verify some other things. There's... There's um, something called a harmony of the Gospels, that if you have a digital program, you could probably just find this for free online somewhere. But it just shows, if this event was mentioned in Luke, is it also mentioned in any of the other Gospels? And you can kind of read that. That's kind of a helpful thing to sort of give a, a more well-rounded report. You consider, you know, four people observing an event. They're all going to give you different little shades of it. Luke doesn't give us a ton in terms of sheer word count, but provides some really, really powerful things. Let me ask a question. So just converse with me for a moment. Um, what is odd? What, what would, of all we know about Jesus, why would we find it odd, perhaps, that he's getting baptized? Is that odd to you? I mean, we know the end of the story. We know the New Testament and sort of looking back on this event. But why would it be odd that Jesus is getting baptized? It's like he didn't have to be baptized. Why? He was sinless to begin with. Right! Like, here's the sinless Son of God 
getting in line with the rest of the sinners for a baptism of repentance. Any other thoughts on that? You're, you're bringing some other scriptures into it, Brian. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right. You're, you're, you're exactly right. So, so in the moment, though, if you live day to day and you're just down at the river and, and John, John has explicitly said, like, like this is a baptism of repentance, and catch this, he has Gentiles who would have been baptized into the community. Of, of Jewish people. That was a visible identification in the community. And he's calling Jewish people to this. This is why the whole stir last week about we have Abraham as our father, like all of that. So, so you're right. This is, this is an inauguration. In fact, here's an interesting thing. The word inauguration, one of the first synonyms that comes up is baptism. Kind of an interesting thing. Um, so, so there, there is deeper, richer meaning, but John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So if, if it seems curious or odd that he's doing it, he's jumping in line with sinners, getting a baptism of repentance when he has no need to repent if he's sinless. Why did he, why did he do it? Why did Jesus choose to do this? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, Mike. Um, it shows that it was how important it was. Okay. Right. Yeah, he just, he just does this thing. Yeah, and, and, and leaves a, an example for us. Allie? Okay. Any other thoughts on it? Yeah. Just to show that he didn't feel he was, even when he perceived my as greater than them, he didn't need to. Right, right. So here's an interesting thought. You think about our baptism. When I got baptized, it was very clearly explained to me. And this is, I love the picture of the priesthood of all believers. We don't need less with a business card that says pastor. All we need is less who has the spirit of God and says, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God. Great, do some baptisms at, at the Jordan. But I'm sure what Les was, was wanting to communicate was this. Hey, as an individual, what you are doing, you are identifying with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection to, to, to newness of life. So there's an identification piece of baptism. It, with Jesus, it's kind of the reverse. The one who did not need to be baptized for repentance or purification identifies with those who did. Isn't that so powerful? When we read a verse later on that says, Jesus was like us in all respects, except that he was without sin. This is one of those things, Mike, that he, he went into the waters as an example to, to say, like, this is what you should do. Do you notice this? Uh, Luke, Luke gives this that Jesus was praying. So after he had been baptized and while he was praying, so Luke gives special care to prayer in his gospel. In addition, he gives special care to highlight the activity and work of the Holy Spirit. Here we have examples of both. Jesus is in prayer. What's, what's prayer? It's a conversation with God. And it's while he's in conversation with God that the heavens part and the voice of God is audibly heard. For our sake, we know this from another place where Jesus says this explicitly. Uh, I always hear it, but for your sake, it was said audibly this time. So Jesus models the relational, dependent life that he is calling us into. He models dependent prayer for our benefit. 
The last thing I want to point out here is just this voicing of pleasure. Think for a minute of all the things. I mean, how many times is God's voice audibly heard, not from the mouth of Jesus? We don't need to play Bible trivia, but you already know the answer. Not many. So of all the things that God the Father, he's going to break this veil and be heard audibly. Of all the things he could have said, what does he say? What does he give priority to? So he doesn't give further theological explanation. He doesn't give a giant motivating speech about Jesus or about people's sin. He basically does two things. He does this audible claiming, this is my beloved son. And then he voices delight in the relationship of father and son. The fact that that is a priority, again, thinking of all the things he didn't say, that means that that is a priority. We get a window, we get a little peek into the heart of God as to what is priority. Let me say this to you, fathers in specific, and and mothers roped into that. But fathers particularly, because fathers sometimes forget this. While your children are young, and then as they age, find out different ways to do this. Whisper in their ear every single night, I'm so glad that I'm your dad. I'm so glad that you're my son. I'm so glad that God chose you to be my daughter. I am so happy with you. I'm so pleased that I get to be called dad and you get to be called son or daughter. Before you think they can even interpret that, gift them with this, fathers. Christian, sons, daughters of the Most High, Quiet your life enough to where you can hear this from your Heavenly Father daily. One of the best ways I know how to do it is open your Bible. Open your Bible, be attentive to, to the Spirit in you, and be attentive. And allow God to wash over your heart and your mind and your will and everything on your to-do that day with this reality that we are now called children of God. And that he delights in us. He doesn't like us or love us because he has to. He's God. He delights in us being his child. Some of you I know recoil at that or really struggle with that. You might even be able to write out theologically why that is true. But not rest in the reality of that experience. The fact that God voices his unique relationship and voices his utter delight and pleasure is profound. I said that was the last thing I'm going to say one more thing. The triune God. The Trinity is present in a really unique way at Jesus' baptism. So we have Jesus, physically the Son, right? We have the Holy Spirit that takes on bodily form and then we have the voice of God being heard. Think about an inauguration. Think about the fact that God's present all the time, but in a unique, powerful way at this, at this public ceremony, God shows up in, in sort of his triune glory. And then think about this. Jesus links the Trinity, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, nature of who we worship, for all of time with being his follower, because he says, make disciples, 
and baptized them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So not only is the Trinity visible and present in a really powerful, profound way at his baptism, but for all time, all Christians being baptized are to, are to call out the nature of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So in the act of baptism and in the voice of approval that comes from on high, that's the first factor of authentication. In case you had any question, this didn't happen to John the Baptist. When John the Baptist is giving testimony, hey, there's one coming who's mightier than I, and then he baptizes him, and this happens. There it is. That's, that's prophecy fulfillment within a moment. So Luke then throws in a, the genealogy of Jesus, and he opens it kind of curiously. Look at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Some of you know what I reference when I mention Treebeard. Treebeard is a walking, talking tree from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It got me thinking about this. All of us have a metaphorical family tree. What would our family tree say about us if it could talk? And would we invite our family tree to parties and social gatherings? Or would we keep that family tree locked away in the closet and say, shh, put a gag order on tree beard? So here's the question about genealogies. What does Jesus' family tree say about Jesus? That's what genealogies really are about. Um, we have adopted several times internationally. And when you adopt internationally, people from this country and people from another country are asking this question. Who are you? And you don't just get to say your first name. You don't just get to reference or point to someone in the, in the room and say, well, I'm, I'm the father of these people and I'm married to this person. They want some sort of proof. So what has to happen, and I've done this several times now, is I had to go to San Mateo County. I was born in Redwood City, and I had to get a copy of the original birth certificate on file for me. Now, I haven't gone far, so that was a pretty easy trip up there. But not only do I get that, I then get that, and then I have to have a notary that says, yep, this is really what this is. And guess what? Notaries cost money. So I pay that person to verify that, yes, this paper is what it says it was. And then they also want my fingerprints. They don't only want my fingerprints. They want anyone over 18 who lives in my home. They want their fingerprints. And not just one agency wants fingerprints. They can't share fingerprints. They're not Christians. They don't share. I don't know. So another department says, we want some money too. It costs a lot of money to put a fingerprint down. So I got to give them my fingerprints. All this to say that saying who I am and giving some verifiable evidence is mandatory. You don't play that game. You don't get to, you don't get to adopt a, a, a child, period. So in some settings, people ask who I am. I just tell them my name. Some places, you got to whip out a, a uh, driver's license, right? Um, and some places, you have to verify in some pretty significant ways. Genealogies are a little bit like a very formal, detailed record that is unalterable saying who you are. So it's DNA evidence, so to speak, in the court of who is this person. 
I don't know about you, but when I'm reading through the scriptures and I get to a genealogy or I even get the sort of hint that genealogy is coming, it feels a little bit like for me when I'm on a bike ride and I turn a corner on an unknown road and it just shoots straight up the hill. And I'm like, oh man, I don't look at genealogies and go, yes! Names that are hard to pronounce, strung together in unbelievably long lists. Yeah, hot dog! It's going to be a party tonight. I just don't. Like, that is not my wiring. A slim few of you maybe think that that's pretty great. My opinion of genealogies is on the rise. Here's what I've always taken by faith. I've taken by faith that God did not record things that aren't beneficial for me. So a little bit like eating vegetables that my parents kept telling me was good for me, and I eventually developed a taste for some. I still have a taste for others, but I just did it kind of out of love and obedience. I said, okay, I'll, I'll just trust you. So you know what? When, when you say you're going to read through the Bible, here's my encouragement to you. Here's my pleading with you. Struggle your way through the genealogies. If that bums you out too much, get version's Bible on your, on your phone and listen to it. And just listen to genealogies. That has actually been, believe it or not, a moving, worshipful experience for me over the years. Not every time. But let me, let me, let me see if I can just kind of excite you a little bit about genealogies. Here's, here's the reason for genealogies. Genealogies do at least three things. Number one is they prove who is Jewish and who is not Jewish. This is a really important thing. It's an important thing because the Israelites were the chosen people of God. And so a genealogy is how you prove whether you are Jewish or not. Secondly, it proves who could serve as priest within the Jewish community. If you weren't from and a descendant of the Levites, you could not serve as priest. Thirdly, it does this. It proves who or who was not a direct descendant of David. Who was Jewish? Who could serve as priest? Who was a descendant of David? Why are these things important? Because of this. God's promises were made and were tied to certain conditions. And they're verifiable conditions. The Messiah who was promised must be a Jewish male, was to be our high priest, and must be a descendant of David. Catch this. Jesus of Nazareth. Fulfills all three of those. So that weeds out a whole bunch of people who by, by public record are clearly not the Messiah. There's still a lot of work to be done, but you see that genealogies all of a sudden pave the way for some verifiable things of saying whether someone is qualified or not. Let me go back to the Lord of the Rings for a moment. If someone comes from a faraway land and claims right to a throne... You don't just go, oh, cool, and what's your last name? Excellent, you're in. Man, they're going to want some authentication. They're going to want some verification. Who are you? Jesus, friends, make no mistake, we've already seen this in the birth proclamations. The Messiah would have a kingdom whose rule would know no end. This is a king to end all kings. This is the eternal king. And here he is showing up, and what God is providing and what Luke is showing to us is that Jesus was qualified. Matthew and Luke uniquely provide genealogies to show that this is true. If you read Matthew's genealogy, which starts off his gospel, and Luke's genealogy, you'll see that they read different. Why is that? It's simply because of this. 
There's different ways to say who you are depending on the various settings that you're in. So, for instance, Matthew, if you look at his genealogy, it's abbreviated and stylistic. He starts with Abraham, Father Abraham, and he moves forward in time to Jesus. Who is Matthew primarily writing to? What kind of audience? To a Jewish audience. Is that important to start with Abraham and move forward? Absolutely. Here's what's very un-Jewish about his genealogy. And I have some thoughts as to why he does this. We're not going to get into it. But he includes four women in his genealogy. Very un-Jewish. Further disqualifying is they're Gentiles. I'll leave you just to figure out why he might have done that. Luke. What does Luke do? Luke doesn't start with Abraham and move forward. He starts with Jesus and works backwards. And when he gets to Abraham, he keeps going. He goes all the way back to Adam. Which significantly, he calls the Son of God. I like how one commentator says this. It says, Luke seems to be flashing his theological headlights at us here. Wanting to point out that there are actually two people who can be spoken of as the Son of God. Both Adam and Jesus have no human biological father. They owe their descent directly from God himself. Of course, what Genesis records is that the first Adam fell to sin and broke fellowship with God. The second Adam, Jesus, broke the curse of sin and restored fellowship with God. Luke shows that Jesus' claim to be the promised Messiah is legitimate. And catch this, the genealogical um, tracing makes it a matter of public record. Why does he go all the way back to Adam? Remember, this is the most accessible universal of the four Gospels. It's to say this, that in Jesus Christ, salvation is provided not just for the children of Abraham, but for all people. What's our tagline in our series? It's, it's hopeful healing for all. This is great news because most of you I'm looking at are Gentiles. If you're confused what that is, it means not Jewish. So that's great news for us that Jesus traces his record all the way back to Adam. Luke is offering certainty. He's confirming uh, and authenticating the identity of the Messiah. I was really moved this week. I've, been, I've known for a long time, and it's been a powerful apologetic for me as to the authenticity of Jesus Christ, that prophecies written hundreds and hundreds of years ago that God saw fit to not only put in writing, but preserve through wars and hiding and deterioration and all kinds of stuff. That we have this accurate record of prophecies made long before Jesus was born. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and the parents, the circumstances uh, surrounding him, uh, the people ruling, the locations, what was going to happen after he was newly born, all of that stuff, all these things are fulfilled in prophecy. So like many of you, seeing prophecy is an apologetic. It's a defense of the faith of going, yeah, those things can be fabricated. Here's what's powerful about about the, the genealogical record. That God also saw fit to put in writing... For centuries, a clear, traceable, verifiable, and here's the most important part, you cannot fabricate this genealogy. A person who was born in this time and place can't go back and somehow change 
this hard and fast genealogical record. It's an apologetic, friends, for the identity of who Jesus is. Let me shift with a few minutes I have left to ask this. I think these are some good questions to ask of a scripture text when you read it. Ask this question. Is there a command to obey here? Some of you are like, should I log on to you know, familytree.com and trade? I don't know that that's the command to obey. <laughs> Maybe, but that's not where I went with it. Is there a command to obey here? Is there an invitation to accept? Is there a promise to believe? Let me take Jesus' baptism for one second. Just as with Passover, Jesus brought not only fulfillment of it, but worlds of color and layers of meaning that now add on to this ritual, this ceremony of baptism. Judaism had its ritual cleansings, and Gentiles were baptized into the Jewish community. Jesus added this to it. After his resurrection, we see baptism uh, not only as a you know public initiation into a visible community, not only as a purification, but also as a living drama that we then go down into the grave, that we are raised again to new life. So what someone is doing when they are following the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism is they are literally, they're doing a mini play. And they're saying outwardly with their actions, this is an internal reality that's already gone on. And it's their inauguration into the Christian community. Don't you love that baptism is a declaration of the new creation? The old self is dead. The new birth has occurred. By Jesus' blood, we enter into his family. When you fast forward to the very end of Jesus' life, his final directive to his disciples is go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He couldn't have been more clear. This sacrament, this this holy ceremony is monumental. It means something. Jesus links this with what it means to become a follower. Here's what's more. The early church demonstrates this as a normative process. People are confronted with their sin. They repent of their sin. They place their trust in Jesus and they get baptized. Read Luke's sequel. It's called Acts. Over and over and over again. This was the practice of the early church. There wasn't a massive time gap between someone repenting and believing and needing to to go do a whole bunch of other things. We include only one requirement here, and it's exactly the spirit of what Les wanted to do when the day before people said, I want to get baptized. What we feel before God is we don't want to put on a religious show. We don't want to offer people religious hocus-pocus. Um, and so we want to clearly explain, here is, here is what this means. Do you still want to do it? So what Les was doing on the shore ministry was, in the power of the Spirit, in prayer, in concern for these people, giving a baptism class. How long did it last for each person, Les? Oh, it was a group. How, how long did you spend? Dynamite. He's more succinct than I. I'm a talker. We take about an hour and a half, two hours. That's our, that's our baptism class. 
So, so that class is not a biblical requirement. It's a spirit of the law requirement of just saying, man, this is a monumental thing that you're doing. We want to make sure that you're, you're doing it in the spirit that, that, it's, that it's given. But it's perfectly appropriate if we were to, to do a baptism next week to just say, is there anyone else, anyone, who would come forward right now, repent of their sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and, and be saved and, and be found to be a child of God by faith? It would be a perfectly acceptable thing to have someone say, yeah, that's me. I would probably just do the baptism class. I wouldn't take two hours. I would just do it right then and there. So let me, let me give you one more thing. Um, flip over to Acts 19 for a second. So it's normative in the early church that people repent of their sins, trust in Jesus for salvation, and get baptized. Peter's preaching. Repent and be baptized, he says. At Pentecost. In the book of Acts, Paul comes to Ephesus, which would later become this central figure and, and place in the New Testament. And look at verse 1 of, of Acts 19. It says, There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. That's what we read about last week. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, Jesus. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is a picture of Paul coming across some believers who have a heart to God to do whatever God says, I'll just do it. Part of my wrestling match was, what does it really matter if I get baptized in front of a bunch of people or not? That was one of my defenses. It was really more about me and my name not wanting to be in front of other people doing something sort of embarrassing, which is to just go underwater. So this is a story of people have a heart for God. They misunderstood baptism or didn't have a complete picture. And watch this. Once they gained a complete picture, they just did what the prescription was from Jesus. Get baptized. So they got baptized again. Let me tell you some of what's stopping some people in our church and our Christian community from getting baptized again. Pride. The pride that says this. I've been a Christian for 17 years. I got baptized, but it wasn't my choice. I got baptized because it was a thing to do at a winter camp in high school. I got baptized uh, before because of whatever else. How humbling it would be and friends, how beautiful it would be to say, I love God, and I show that by just following his commands. And I realized I went through a ritual that had no meaning to it. And as humbling as it is, I'm going to get rebaptized because I've learned sort of a, a fresh understanding that I don't think I ever really went through believer's baptism. It was chosen for me. Someone else did it. My heart wasn't in the right place. Some of the most tearful conversations in my office have been people fighting with this. It's just a pride thing, isn't it? How beautiful a picture for all of us, young and old Christians alike, to get a new understanding of what God's asking us to do and just say, I've been doing it wrong the whole time. I'm going to shift. 
I'm going to simply obey and receive what's being asked of me. If you are a follower of Jesus, I just ask you, what's being, what's stopping you from being baptized? Jesus models it. He commands it. And even those who misunderstood it, corrected it by getting baptized into Jesus Christ. What's beautiful about baptism is there's a public record to it. We actually have a record. We don't, we don't record many things. You know what we record? We record who's been baptized. I've had people who've moved away from our church and got baptized 10 years ago at this church. And they're going to go on a missions trip or they're going to go apply for something at a church, whatever. And they need a record of it. Guess what? We have it. It's a matter of public record. There were people that witnessed that baptism. We could say, yes, that definitively happened. What a gift. Galatians 3.27 says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I love this picture of putting on Christ. When you put on a jersey, you clearly identify with the team, publicly. You walk out on the field, you immediately have teammates that rally around you and say, you're one of us. We're going to share our water with you when you get thirsty. You get the game plan. You've got a role on this team. And the moment you step on the field wearing one jersey, you are the immediate target of another team. You have publicly said this, and this is totally a picture of of getting baptized. I am on the Jesus team. Now and forever, he's my Lord and King. I've devoted my life to him. That's who I am. You pull on the jersey and you say, come what may. That's, that's the public nature of baptism. Now, what does it mean to be baptized into Jesus? In Jesus, we are now called children of God. In Jesus, we have been forgiven and cleansed. Catch this. In Jesus, we are perfectly holy. Not sanctified yet. We're going to wrestle with sin. But in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of God looking down on us, He sees us covered in the blood of Christ. In Jesus, we are secure in our forever family, to use an adoption world phrase. And perhaps most profound of all, in Jesus, we are well-pleasing to the holy God of the universe. Church, this is worth singing about. This is worth, this is worth being joyful about. I want to have the band come back up. And I want you just to close your eyes for a second. I want to take you back to the family tree metaphor for a moment. And just think about trees as, as you hear this. Listen to Jesus' instructions to his disciples. This is Jesus speaking directly to his disciples. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. 
As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. Perhaps what's in order, church, is for you to take a walk in the forest. To sit still and quiet long enough to really observe a branch resting in a tree. Take that picture with you. Lock it in and trust that Jesus knows what he's telling us to do when he says, your role is to abide, remain, rest. There's a promise here to rest in. Your acceptance by God is settled and secure. Abide in that truth. Your high priest speaks to God on your behalf and you are clean. Your earthly family tree doesn't gain you access. Your earthly family tree doesn't prevent you access from your spiritual tree, which is going to last forever. God is grafting in all kinds of branches, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free. And he's forming a new people, a new creation that share one spirit. Because Jesus rose from the dead, no one remains underwater during baptism. They rise as a new creation. Therefore, no addiction or depression has the power to enslave. No temptation needs to torment. Even death itself, as we just sang, loses its sting. Both the fear of it and the actual reality of it. Church, we're going to sing a song right now that's familiar to us. It gets to the heart of the identity of who God is and who God has spoken us to be. And we see this as a picture even at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son in who I am well pleased. Let's sing together.